Matthew 22 is where we're going to be this morning, looking specifically at verses 34 to 40. Matthew chapter 22, beginning of verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the last couple of weeks, the last several weeks really, we've been looking within chapters 21 and 22 of this great book of the Bible called Matthew. And we have saw within chapter 21 the triumphal entry. Remember that Jesus, he, he gets onto this cult and he rides, the cult of a donkey, and he, he rides into the city of Jerusalem. Remember that all the crowds were surrounding him with palm branches and they had their, their cloaks and everything and laying it on, on the road as he was riding that donkey into the city. This great picture, this great celebration. He had a carpet, as it were, as he was riding that donkey into the city. Just a, a beautiful scene it must have been. The, the palm branches themselves would have been a sign of victory. And the imagery is really clear within chapter 21. And that this is Jesus riding into the city like a, a general of old, a, a king of old who had gone out and, 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 and had a great battle and won the victory. And now he was riding into the city, very clearly designating himself as the king. And so that's the picture that we have here. That Jesus is riding on that donkey into the city as the king. And you remember, we noted when we looked at that passage that Luke supplies information that Jesus cried after he rode that donkey into the city. He wept over the city of Jerusalem because they were not truly accepting him as the king to rule and reign over their hearts. They were merely hoping that he would overthrow the government at that time, the Roman government. Well, the next day comes, and you remember that Jesus is walking into the city of Jerusalem, and he comes across a fig tree. Remember that the fig tree, from a distance anyway, looked the part. It had all the branches, it had all the leaves, it looked as though it was going to be a really healthy tree to give him some sort of sustenance so he could make it through that morning for breakfast. And so he gets up to the tree and he looks at the fig tree and he, he analyzes it and he sees that there's absolutely no figs to be found on this tree. And you remember what he does, it's actually a very strange thing, he curses the fig tree. And the fig tree dies, it withers and it dies. He says, may no fruit ever come from you again. And you remember that this is a picture of the judgment that would be passed on to Jerusalem, onto the people of Israel. And so as he goes in, there's even a greater picture of his judgment. He goes and he cleanses the temple of all of the filth that's going on within, at least at that time, the holy place. So he goes into the temple and he, 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 he pushes all of those out who are profiting and selling within that temple complex. He pushes all of them out. Then you notice within chapter 21 that his authority begins to be challenged. And that's something that we've been dealing with for the last few weeks. 
He begins to teach these parables and specifically noted in chapter 21 that he's directing these parables at the chief priests and the scribes. He's, he's directing these parables right at the religious rulers of the day. And so as time goes on and we get into chapter 22, these leaders start coming after him, right? Jesus has essentially picked a fight with these guys and they're coming after him with all that they have. And we've looked at the last few weeks where the disciples of the Pharisees, they come to Jesus along with the Herodians, this other group of people, in order to test Jesus, in order to try to get Jesus to slip up a little bit. Last week we saw the Sadducees come to Jesus. And you remember that they asked him a question about the resurrection. They, they posed to him that dilemma of this woman who has had seven husbands and, and, and what would that be like in the future? Which, which, which one of these men would this woman be married to? And so on. And so they are throwing everything that they have in order to try to trip Jesus up. They do not love him. They do not want him. They've exemplified that they have denied him. They've exemplified that they're going to receive the punishment for their denial of him. The kingdom of God has been stripped away from them. And they are acting as such. But I want you to consider in light of these two chapters that we've looked at so far. Within this Passion Week. So we've, we've started on the Sunday with the triumphal entry. This morning we're going to be on the Wednesday of that Holy Week, of that Passion Week. But I want you to consider Jesus throughout these last few days. Do you get the picture that Jesus is walking on eggshells? Do you get any sense that Jesus is beating around the bush with anybody? I mean, think of it. This morning, our passage, it falls on the Wednesday. He's going to be put on the cross two days from where we are within the text. It's it's incredible. It's an incredible thing. He is not walking on eggshells because he knows what's coming. He knows that it has to come. Submitting to his Father and his Father's will, he knows that he is going to go on the cross. And he is not walking on eggshells or beating around the bush, just cleansing the temple, just jumping to the heart of the religious center of that place, cleansing it out. Does that look like walking on eggshells? Does directing these parables right at these people, does that sound like beating around the bush? I've been reading a book this week, and it basically said that Jesus didn't go to the cross for being like Mr. Rogers. He did not. He went directly at them. And so it's Wednesday of the Holy Week, and all that is happening is serving to bring Jesus to the cross. And so within our passage this morning, as you saw there in verse 34, you see that the Pharisees hear that he had silenced the Sadducees. Now, as we've talked about, the Sadducees are direct nemesis of the Pharisees, so likely the Pharisees are quite glad that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, but they still get together because they're going to pose to him one more question. And you see that the Pharisees designate, or at least there's a man who jumps out in order to go and test Jesus. And Matthew refers to him as a lawyer. Now this is an interesting word for Matthew to use because he does not often use it. Usually he'll use the word scribe. It'll essentially mean the same kind of person. But this lawyer jumps out. But I don't want you to think of him as a modern day lawyer. He's not an attorney of sorts. That all he does is, is represent somebody in court or something like that. Instead, think Law expert. This man, this lawyer that's coming to Jesus would have been an expert in the Bible. He would have been an expert in the law of Moses. And these guys had three main responsibilities. To take God's law and to interpret it for themselves and for the people. The second thing that they would do is teach. 
So with their interpretation and how they understood God's word, they would go ahead and they would teach children and they would teach others as well. And the third thing they would do is they would determine different questions concerning the law. And so if you had a question that you wanted answered, this is the kind of guy that you would go to. You would want to go to a lawyer, a law expert, in order to have your question about the Bible answered. And so it's really interesting that a man who was used to having a lot of people come to him in order to ask him questions, he is now going to Jesus and asking Jesus a question. And so these lawyers, these law experts, they often sat around and debated the weightier and lighter matters of the law. And you notice that within his question, that's where he's going. He wants to know what Jesus thinks is the heaviest law. What's the greatest law? What's the most significant or important law? So these guys, they would have divvied out the law to, be within, uh, to have 613 laws. Some were more positive, some were more negative. But they would debate which one is the greatest. And notice the question that he asks again in verse 36. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your Mind. So this is good. The man asks a direct question. Jesus gives him a direct answer. And you'll notice, though, that the question that the lawyer asks is a singular question. He's just looking for one answer. Which is the greatest? And Jesus goes ahead and he answers it initial, but he, initially, but he goes on in verse 39. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so the law expert asks a singular question. He gets that that initial answer, but it's really a two-part answer. That the greatest is to love God with all of your all of your capacity, all of your heart, soul, mind and strength, but then the second is to love your neighbor. And then there's a little further explanation that all the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament depends upon these two commands. Now to give you an example, what would that look like? What would that look like for, the, for God's law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, to hang upon to love God and to love others? I'll give you the example of even the Ten Commandments. You think of the Ten Commandments, and scholars have long uh, thought it good to, to even divide those two up. So you think of the first four commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, no graven images, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. You think of those first four of the Ten Commandments. And, and which, of the great, which great or second commandment would those hang on? Well, the great commandment. That you are to love the Lord your God with all of your capacity. And so, when you think of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, that would hang on loving God with all of your capacity. Don't have any graven images. That would hang on loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't take His name in vain. Love the Lord with all that you have. Remember the Sabbath day. If you're going to love God, you're going to remember His day. Well, what about the latter six of the Ten Commandments? Honor your father and your mother. Well, if you love your neighbor, assuming that your mom and dad are your neighbor, of course, then you are to love them. Well, what about committing adultery? What about murdering? What about stealing from somebody? Or bearing false witness? Or coveting something? Well, if you love your neighbor, you're obviously not going to kill them. I hope. 
If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet the things that God has given to them. And so you can see how even the Ten Commandments, they cannot stand without the first and second commandment. Without love, the Ten Commandments fall to the ground. And so it is with the entirety of God's law. Without love, all of it comes crashing down. But think with me a little further on these two commandments, to love God and to love others. Do you realize how impossible this is? That left to yourself, you cannot love God. Left to yourself, you cannot truly love others. The Bible talks about our hearts. It says that our hearts are desperately sick. We're, we're sinful. That we were conceived in iniquity. It says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so without God, loving God is totally impossible. Without God, loving others is impossible. 1 John chapter 4.19 says we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. So those of you who are wondering, well, I, I love somebody. I never really thought about it in connection with God or whatever. But he says that you love because he first loved you. So he loved you first. And so now your love for him is a response to his initial love for you. So you take a, a moment to consider God's love. Do you do that? Even Throughout this last week, as you've considered Thanksgiving and what you're grateful for, have you stopped to consider the fact that God loves you? That He gave all to you. The song, the praise song, Oh, how He loves you and me, oh, how He loves you and me. He gave His life, what more could He give? Oh, how He loves you and me. Or John 3.16, God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, That he gave all. And so this command that you love him with your full capacity is simply a response to the great self-sacrificing love that he has had for you. I like this quotation. It says this. The point is that God's wholehearted love must not be answered in a half-hearted manner. God's wholehearted love toward you must not be be responded to in a half-hearted manner, but with all of your heart. Imagine a relationship, a marriage, where, where one spouse loves the other with all of their heart and sacrifices, but the other one does not really care. What, what kind of terrible relationship that would be where there's just sacrificial love being poured out on one end and then on the other end, I don't really care. It's a horrific Relationship, but God's wholehearted love must not be answered in a half-hearted manner on our part, but with all of our heart. Now, I think that all of us in here would confess that we love God. I'm sure if we went right down the rows, every single one of you would say, absolutely, I love God. But there are tests, even within the scriptures, as to if you genuinely love God. God. There are at least two here. First, keeping his commandments. A good test to see if you love God is if you keep his commandments. First John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not 
burdensome. John chapter 14 says, If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. So this is an incredible test to, to diagnose your own heart. As you analyze yourself and you think of the application to your own heart. And you say, I love God. Well, do you keep his commandments? Because that is a great test to see if you genuinely love him. But a second test would be loving others. There's a very serious problem when somebody says, I love God, but I do not love these people. Well, they're willing to say, absolutely, I I love God. Even words like, with all of my heart, like our passage in Matthew 22. With all of my heart, I love God. God, but I want to read to you a passage from 1 John chapter 4. Let me get over there. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 says this. If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he, or his brother who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Friends, if you do not love others, you cannot truly be a lover of God. John calls you a liar. And this is really the direction I think that Jesus is going in our Matthew passage. That these two commands are so closely connected. I was racking my brain as I was thinking about this first commandment and the second commandment that Jesus says is like to it. thinking through those and trying to think of a really good example of of somebody who loved somebody else and and, and did something really sacrificial. And I had just seen the movie uh, Hacksaw Ridge, and so it's totally spoiler for you right now. Um, But anyway, it's all about this one guy, Desmond Doss, I think his name is, and he ends up as a medic saving a bunch of people. And he did end up talking about later on that his motivation was love. But you know, as I continue to think about it even more, and I thought, well, you know what? Jesus actually gives an illustration of what it would look like to love somebody else, doesn't he? There's another lawyer that comes up to Jesus, and this, this idea of loving your neighbor comes up. And you remember that Jesus says, absolutely, you are to love your neighbor. And then the lawyer, the text says, seeking to justify himself, said, well, who is my neighbor, right? Who is my neighbor? Is it just the person that lives next door? Is it somebody who lives in my house? Well, who is my neighbor? And you remember the illustration that Jesus gives. He says that there was a Jewish man who was beat to within an inch of his life. And this man was set on the side of the road on the highway, and he was dying. Remember that a priest comes by, and the priest sees him, this really religious guy, sees this man on the side of the road, and he walks by on the other side. Then the Levite comes, who's also a very religious person. He sees the man laying on the side of the road, and he walks on the other side. And then there's a third man who comes along. Who was that third man? God, who was he? The Samaritan. And the Samaritan comes by, and he sees this man who has been beat to an inch of his life, and he goes up to him, and he binds his wounds. He cleans his wounds with oil and with wine and he takes care of him. He brings him to an inn and he tells the innkeeper, whatever this man, the cost incurs, whatever he incurs, go ahead and have it paid for and I will come back and take care of it for you. You see, the Samaritan demonstrated an incredible love for this Jewish man. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews, yet he went and he loved on this Jewish man who was in the ditch 
But you know, have you thought as well about this great commandment to love and the commandment to love God and to love others? Have you thought about it from the perspective that we need to be commanded to love? This is a commandment. You're being told to love. But doesn't that go against how we feel about love? That love is something I feel for you. Love is something that just kind of pours out of me. You don't need to tell me to love somebody that I love. I just do love them. But it's interesting that Jesus and God, throughout all of the Bible, it's you are commanded to love God and you are commanded to love other people. I was actually having a conversation about this with somebody the other day. And this was a point of, of, they had a problem with Christians because they felt like, well, they don't really love me. They're told to love me. It's not real love that's coming out of them. Instead, it's actually God is making them or forcing them to love me. So it's really not true love. But it is a command. But the good thing about this command is that God is the one who brings about the obedience to the command. One quotation here says, A loving commitment to God, initiated by God himself, results in love for one's Neighbor. So again, where does our love come from? 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. But what about our love for other people? Have you considered that? Why do you love other people? Where does that love come from? Ultimately, it comes again from God himself. When we consider Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 with the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so this is something that God himself is working within you. Our ability to love others is not innate, but it is part of the fruit of the Spirit that God gives. So your love for others is actually from God if it is true love. Listen to this quotation from J.I. Packer. Love is not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit It is a matter of will rather than feeling. For Christians must love even those they dislike. It is the basic element in Christ-likeness. And so your capacity to love comes from God. And that love is to be reciprocated back to Him as well as distributed to others. And so to the one who would struggle with that idea... That you only love because you're commanded to love. Well, just because we're commanded to love doesn't mean that your love is disingenuous or that it's fake. But that you are loving with the love God alone can supply. If you're not in 1 John chapter 4, why don't you turn over there? And I think this text really proves that point. 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. He says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that He sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. And so you see how all of this pushes us toward the gospel. 
Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 22, you are to love God with your full capacity, but you're to love everybody else. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. But you see here how even in 1 John, where he says, let us love one another because love is from God and anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And so if you have a genuine relationship with God, that love is going to come down from him to you, and therefore you can reciprocate the love back to him, and the love can be dispensed to your neighbors. And it all pushes us toward the gospel, as you see there in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. So how was his love shown? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Isn't that incredible? Again, doesn't that grate against you a little bit? That we like to think that we naturally came up with our own love for God. But he says that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And what did he do as a representation of his great love? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So because of the great love that God has had for you, you now dispense it toward others. Friends, Jesus has, God has sent Christ and he submitted himself to the Father to die upon the cross two days from this passage in Matthew chapter 22. It's incredible truth of his death and his resurrection on our behalf. And like we talk about week after week, and I hope you realize and you get the sense that we purpose to talk about these things week after week. About the gospel of Christ. Because you need to hear it every week. You need to hear the gospel. We, we make it a point that the gospel is not something that you simply believe for a moment and then, oh, I don't need the gospel anymore. You need the gospel throughout your entire life. You need to be reminded of its truths. You need to be reminded that Jesus died for you and that he took the punishment for your sin, that he was the propitiation for you. You need to be reminded that he went into the grave so you didn't have to, that he rose from the dead on your behalf and that you stand with him. We all need to be reminded of these things. And you notice again that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son To be the propitiation for our sins. And if God loved us, we ought to love one another. It should be remarkable to the world around us that we love each other. Again, we we look at our group of people here. And we consider what we have in common. A lot of you guys like to make fun of me for being the city boy from Rhode Island. And that's okay, because I shot a deer a couple weeks ago. (laughs) But we don't have much in common. We really don't. Some of you are really into horses. Some of you are really into skiing. Some of you are really into this sport or this music or this kind of music or this kind of whatever. We all have these different tastes. And what should be remarkable to the world around us is that this random group of of people love each other. All different ages from all areas of the country. And we love each other. Why? Because he first loved us. This is a beautiful thing. My prayer for us this morning is that God will increase our love for himself and for our neighbors, for one another. We used to sing a song when I was a kid. I don't, haven't heard it sung in a while. But it's a prayer 
More love to Thee, O Christ, more love to Thee. Hear Thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to Thee. More love to Thee. More love to Thee. And as He expands our love for Him, may it also spread to those to whom He brings our way in the form of our neighbors. Lord, we thank You for Your great love that You have for us. We know that we cannot love on our own in in a true way. So we pray, Lord, that You will dispense more love to us, that it may be reciprocated to You and given freely to our family and friends here, to those who live in our region, Lord. We're thankful. We're thankful that you loved us first. And we're, we're grateful now that we can say that we love you. Not because we were special, not because we were great, but because you saved us. And so now we are thankful for the love you've given. And we give it back to you. And help us practically in our lives to give it to others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.